Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics, Part 10, Old Testament Trustworthiness. Last time we looked at reasons to believe the Jewish scribes reliably transmitted the Old Testament so that what we have today is what they actually wrote. This time you'll learn five main reasons why we believe the Hebrew Bible is true. One, archaeology. Two, medical insights. Three, unflattering honesty. Four, predictive prophecy. And five, martyrdom. Although some of these are stronger than others, cumulatively, they establish the veracity of Scripture quite convincingly. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is Apologetics Part 10, Old Testament Trustworthiness. All right, so this is Lecture 10, Old Testament Trustworthiness. And the points I want to make relate to archaeology, medical insight, Unflattering honesty. Uh, four is predictive prophecy. And number five is martyrdom. And if we can get through all five of those, we, we will be having a good day. Okay. Here's one of my problems. I have so much on number one, number two, and number three or sorry, one, two, and four, then I don't think I'm going to be able to do much with three and five. So let me just do three and five right now, okay? And uh, unflattering honesty is basically like this. Why would you leave all these embarrassing things about the heroes of the faith if you were making it up? I'll just put a couple of examples. Noah, God destroys the world. Noah escapes by the skin of his teeth. He's the only one, the first one ever in the whole history of the Bible to be shown favor, which is the the idea of grace, right? And what does he do once he lands? He plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and then some weird sexual or whatever sin happens with his kids or his grandkids. You know, it's just like, if you were making it up, right? Obviously Noah's the hero. This isn't the movie. This is the book, right? In the book of Genesis, Noah is clearly the hero. Why would you include that part about how he got, like there's no purpose it serves other than to say, you know, this is like really embarrassing. I mean, I'm gonna play devil's advocate. If I was gonna make up a story, I would definitely make the characters flawed, but I'd make it more believable. You'd make it what? More believable. I didn't hear what you said, you'd make the characters flawed. Flawed. Is that what they did in the ancient world, though? Would they flaw characters to make them more beautiful, especially heroes? And- you have flaws, right? But then you have what David did. David's flaw is so heinous and so severe. It involves premeditated murder, adultery, lying, coveting, like basically all the Ten Commandments. He probably did it on the Sabbath day, too. You know, like, <laughs> he, he basically breaks all the rules, right? And then what is the commandment of God from the prophet Nathan? It's that the same thing is going to happen to David, and what David did in secret is going to happen to him publicly, and it happens on the rooftop, doesn't it? Where his son Absalom goes into his concubines and in public asserts his rulership over David. If you read David carefully, 
His whole life is basically miserable. He's hunted like a dog for most of it, and then at the last part of it, he's kicked out of his own kingdom, he lives in uncertainty. There's only this little tiny golden age when he brings the ark in, but even when he brings the ark in, his wife criticizes him, and he has marital disputes. Like, the guy just never caught a break, really. You look at Moses, I mean, God says, Moses, I want you to go lead my people. And Moses is like, no way. I am not leading your people. I, 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 I can't, can't even speak. Right? And God gets angry at Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Right? Like he, he, try, he defeats all of Moses' excuses. At the end of it, he's like, just send somebody else. <laughs> like, this is the guy? This is Moses? This is the one Moses that's the, like no greater prophet has ever risen until the time of Christ than this 80-year-old inbred fugitive who says no to the call of God? This is the one? Yeah, that's the one. Or Abraham. Abraham routinely lies and deceives other people, right? He's very weak. He does also have these remarkable moments of faith as well. You know, he's like a real, it's almost like he's a real person. <laughs> I guess that's the point. You know, it's not, obviously, obviously this is not a slam dunk because of Josiah's point, but it is a reason. And then the other one, the other smaller point, I would say, is martyrdom. And on that one, I want you to read to me Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 39. And then again, the question is, why die for a lie? When somebody dies for their faith, it doesn't tell you that what they believe is true. What it tells you is that they're convinced it's true. In other words, you know, if somebody thinks that there's an alien that told them to kill us all, and they kill us all, that doesn't mean that there's an alien. It just means that they're convinced that there's an alien. It's a gauge of sincerity, not of absolute truth. But even so, it's still a gauge. Go ahead, Talon, read that for us, please. And one more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, become mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains, caves, holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. All right, so you have prophets versus mega-pastors. I have, once in my life, attended the World Changer Dome with Creflo Dollar, and I heard him speak and I witnessed his service and I'm told he has a Rolls Royce and at least one private jet trying to, trying to get another one. Not just to single him out, there are many other mega pastors that I'm not here to criticize and, and, and lambast these people, but uh, it seems like their lives are going pretty well. Let's just say from like a financial perspective, okay? So you could see why somebody might have incentive to want to become a mega pastor. 
be like, I want to be a mega pastor. I want to be like Creflo Dollar when I grow up. I want to be like Joel Osteen when I grow up because then I could have all these people that would love me and they would give me all their money and I could, whatever. You know, you can imagine somebody saying, I want to be like that. That's so contrasted to the prophets of the Bible. <laughs> you just write a description. They're wandering around in sheepskins. They're destitute. They're afflicted. Or at least one is saw in it too. To become a prophet of God is to have an experience in which God so interacts with you that you are a changed person. You're different than everyone else. Typically, the prophet's message is to the king. It typically is negative. It's a terrible job. Pretty much nobody believes you most of the time. Everybody hates you. You know, especially somebody like Jeremiah. He's the least successful prophet in the whole Bible. And yet, we get chapter after chapter after chapter of his life. Why in the world does he persist on the most unpatriotic message imaginable? The Babylonians are coming. They're going to win. Don't fight. Just give up. <laughs> That's his message, right? What do they do? They beat him up. What do they do? They throw him in jail. What do they do? They make fun of him in the streets. And yet, Jeremiah is so convinced that God's speaking through him that he keeps going year after year after decade after decade until finally it happens, just like he said. And then they still won't let him go. <laughs> they kidnap and bring him down to Egypt. It's like, what? You have a real lack of incentive to want to be a prophet and to write scripture. And second of all, these people are very frequently the ones that get targeted by the political regimes to suffer. All right? So that's just another consideration, martyrdom and suffering, office of a prophet, along with unflattering honesty. And now let's get to our big three topics. Okay, let us take a look at the Sennacherib prism. I have handed it out to you. It's the first page on top there. This is Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Can you read us that bold section there, Dan? I then deceived Hezekiah of Judah, who had not committed to my yoke, and I captured forty-six of his strong cities and fortresses, and innumerable small cities which were around them, with the battering rams and the assault of engines and the attack of foot soldiers, and by mines and breaches, I brought out there from two hundred thousand and one hundred and fifty people both small and great, male and female, and horses and mules and asses and camels and oxen and innumerable sheep I counted as spoils. Himself, like a cage bird, I set up within, his, uh, within Jerusalem his royal city. So this is Sennacherib who's talking about Hezekiah. This is not in the Bible. This is a, a, a piece of stone or clay, some such thing, that is chiseled by the Assyrians to preserve a record of their own history. Look, if the Bible says Hezekiah struggled against Sennacherib who came and surrounded the city and attacked it and everything else, that's one thing. But if you find it also in secular history, that's a whole other category, isn't it? Why wouldn't you even take the Bible as, like, in the same manner as that other writing of stone? Like, us history as well. Yeah, right, right. 
people are predisposed to be ultra-skeptical or hyper-skeptical about the Bible because the Bible makes huge claims, like that there is a God and He cares how you live. So if Sennacherib's prism happens to be true, it doesn't affect you. If the Bible happens to be true, you got to stop sleeping around. you got to be true to your wife. you got to tell the truth. You can't cheat on your taxes anymore. You can't cheat at your job anymore. You know, I mean, it has huge impact on your life. And I think for that reason, the, the Bible is often the uh, number one thing attacked. How old is this? Well, Sennacherib is active, I think, in the 700s B.C. Okay, so I would, I would imagine that this comes from around that time. I don't know if it was recorded later, but somewhere around that time frame. Uh, so this is Sennacherib's prism. Let's flip over to the next one. You have the obelisk of Shalmaneser. Can somebody read to me the description? This black limestone obelisk depicts five kings conquered by Shalmaneser III, king of Assyria, from 858 to 824 BC. Each side of the obelisk portrays the five kings and in postures of submission to Shalman Esser, either in prostration to him or bringing tribute. Uh, the second is Jeshu of the house of Omri, king of Israel. This account is found only here. It is not recorded by the Alright, so here we have an artifact of the Assyrians that talks about Jehu. If you've ever read Kings, you've heard of Jehu. He's, he's a more significant figure in the book of the Kings. It says in the fine print there, this obelisk does align with the biblical account of Jehu's later reign in 2 Kings 10, 32-36 and provides the earliest known depiction of an Israelite. It also supplies evidence for their style of clothing worn in royal Israelite households. And it goes on to talk about his clothes a little bit. Here it is. Look, the Bible is not the kind of book that makes up mythology. It's the kind of book that records history. Okay, especially in the Old Testament, and we're in particular thinking about the historical books of the Old Testament as opposed to the prophetic books of the Old Testament. But even in the prophetic books of the Old Testament, they usually start by placing themselves in a setting. You know, for example, Isaiah in the time of Uzziah. Usually the prophets identify who the king was. And so this is a secular, it's an uh, external witness to the existence of Israelite kings, of Jehu in particular, and of his prostration to this Assyrian king. All right, next one up, Josiah, the Merneptah steel. This engraved stone describes the victories of Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah over Libyan invaders. <clears throat> Various outlying groups of raiders banded together to attack Egypt near the end of the 13th century BC. But Merneptah defeated them. You're going to name your kid Merneptah now, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Could you read the fine print too? Yes. The steel also seems to mention a victory over Israel, saying, Israel is a waste without grain. If so, this indicates that an identifiable Israelite population already existed in the late 13th century BC. So again, this is a Egyptian. This is not Jewish or is Israelitish. It's an old old English word. Artifact. This is from Egypt, but it mentions Israel, saying that Israel is waste without grain. And so this would correlate to the time of the judges. 
And there were instances in the time of the judges when we read about how Israelite was without grain. For example, Midianites came in in the time of Gideon, and he was threshing in a wine press. Why is he threshing in a wine press? Because the Midianites are stealing all the grain, so he's like hiding out in the, the wine press. So I don't know if this would corroborate Gideon directly, but we know of similar kinds of things around that time period. Alex, the Mesha steel. This engraved stone contains a royal inscription by Mesha, King Moab, during the 9th century BC. It celebrates Mesha's victory over the son or descendant of Omri. Probably, yeah. In boasting of his victories, Mesha gave glory to Chemosh, chief god of the Moabite, and describes his looting of the temple vessels of Judah. It still contains the earliest known reference to the name Yahweh, outside the Old Testament. Hello. So outside the Old Testament. Now, when does the Old Testament date? What's the oldest part of the Old Testament we have? Going to a museum somewhere. Where, what's the oldest? The Dead Sea Scrolls, which the earliest part of the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated to? 250 BC. Very good, 250 B.C. And this dates to the 9th century B.C., Hello, 700 more years or 650 more years back in time, and yet Yahweh is there, right? And Yahweh is associated with this king, a son of Omri, and they're, they're speculating maybe it's Joram. What about the rest of that, Alex? The steel supports the biblical account of events during Joram's reign of Israel. 2 Kings 3, 21 and 27 describes the king of Moab offering his son as a sacrifice after which great wrath came upon Israel. On the steel, Mesha credits his god, Shemosh, conquering his enemy. So Mesha offers his son, or is it Joram offers his son? I'm not, I'm not sure if that's a typo or if that's uh, correct. But something happens there, and the result is the wrath of God comes in the form, usually, of a foreign invasion. And this steel is not, this is not Israelite. This is a Moabite artifact. King of Moabite sacrificed his son and then beat Israel. Okay. The Cyrus Cylinder. Anybody know who Cyrus was? Persian king. Persian king. The Persians defeated what empire? The Greeks beat the Persians. What? Babylonian, right? So the Assyrians were the, the first empire in that region of great significance. I mean, I guess the Hittites before them. But the Assyrians and then the Babylonians beat the Assyrians and then the Persians beat the Babylonians, right? And so this is Cyrus the Great, as he's known to history, who defeated the Babylonians and told everyone they could go home. And that's what we read in Ezra chapter 1, when the people are sent home after 70 years in captivity. Rook. Could you read this for us? Isn't this stuff cool? I mean, they dug this out of the earth thousands of years later. And then think about the people that figured out how to read this. I mean, look at these symbols. <laughs> this ancient clay cylinder dates from the 6th century BC and contains a declaration from Cyrus the Great. The first section describes Cyrus' greatness and mercy, common theme from such declarations. The second section, composed of Cyrus' own words, describes how he returned captive people and their gods to their native lands. It also reports his hope that all the returned gods will intercede before Bel and Nabu, the chief Babylonian gods, on his behalf. The description of Cyrus' mercy and efforts to return captives 
supports the biblical account of Israel's restoration from exile. See Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. Yeah, Ezra chapter 1 begins with the declaration of Cyrus to return to the land. Look, the Bible is not a made-up book. It's a book that interweaves and interlocks with history, and it leaves a trail behind because there are actual people, and actual people cannot exist without leaving a trail behind. We invent things like styrofoam cups and... No, that's a different, that's a different sermon. Because when we build things, they're left behind, and, and we have history, and it's left behind. And this is one of those things. Take a look at the next one, the Amarna letters. And Jamie can read this one. It'll be more of a challenge for her. This collection of cuneiform tablets is named after the place they were discovered, modern Amarna. The ancient Egyptian city of Akitani, mm. written in the late 14th century BC. These letters record correspondence between Egypt. I really don't want to read those. Tutankhamun, King Tut. And its vassal states. They provide information about trade and government of the time. Can you imagine that being an ancient civilization and writing your letters into clay? Oh, I just got a, I just got an email. Here comes a guy. He's like, puts it down. <laughs> Uh, Our Amarna letters yeah. and the biblical texts describe the land of Canaan. Similarity. Both indicate that Canaan has several territories. Various kings and chariots that served as the means of military control. The Amarna letters describe the city of Shechem as a dangerous place full of political intrigue. The book of Judges does the same at a later date. The Amarna letters also show that the king of the Canaan were under military pressure from nomadic tribes. Hmm, interesting, huh? And uh, I guess they were all shapes and sizes, these letters. But it shows you that there were such places and there were interesting things happening. I don't know, I, I would say this is kind of like a, a lesser significant archaeological find for biblical veracity. Look at the next one, the Babylonian Chronicles. Jesse. Babylonian Chronicles are a series of clay tablets inscribed with Babylonian history. They were written at, a different, at different times beginning around the 6th century BC. They narrate events beginning in the 8th century BC and cover nearly 500 years of history. Some describe events of biblical history, including Jehoiakim's Jeho King Jeho refusal to pay tribute in 2 Kings 24-1, Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 24-10-11, and Jehoiachin's capture in 2 Kings 24-12. One of these, the Nabonidus Chronicle, describes the reign and downfall of the last king before Cyrus, Nabonidus. This tablet also mentions that Nabonidus had a regent, his son, Belsara Usur, the Belshazzar of the book of Daniel. The banquet described in Daniel presumably took place during Belshazzar's regency when Nabonidus was away from Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. So, I mean, here you have an old piece of clay with notches cut out of it, <laughs> but somebody was able to figure out what it said. Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of them, I guess. They're the chronicles. It mentions stuff. You know, I mean, it's not going to mention Israelite stuff that much because it focuses on Babylon, but... When Israelite stuff mentions Babylonian stuff like Daniel and, ba and Babylon, that sort of thing, it is going to show up. Uh, then you have the Lachish Ostraca and the Tel Dan Steel. We'll, we'll flip to the Tel Dan Steel because that one Jesse's going to like. This engraved stone is the only archaeological evidence of King David to be discovered. 
it reads Bet David or whatever, House of David, as in Isaiah 7-2. The steel dates to the mid-9th century B.C. and was found in Dan's city wall in 1993. David, I think we date to like the 10th century, so you already have his name in the ninth, and it's not even just his name, it's the House of David, so it's an established dynasty already by that time. Then flip over a couple more. We're going to skip the Pontius Pilate. That's a New Testament thing. Skip over to the inscription from Hezekiah's tunnel. There's a little bit there. We could look at that some other time. And then up to the uh, bowls of Darius and Artaxerxes. Pretty cool there, right? They talk about Darius the great king. The Bible also mentions Darius in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Artaxerxes as well. And then you have some coins, you know, just flipping through here. Coins of the Gospels, that's a New Testament thing. And, you know, I mean, it's just like everything's leaving a trail. Human civilizations leave trails, and the Bible it talks about a human civilization. So, of course, it's going to leave that kind of a trail behind. All right, so that's archaeology. I just wanted to show you those things. You know, these things corroborate the Bible. There are many other archaeological finds, like actual cities that they found, like Jericho or the old city of David within Jerusalem, that sort of thing. Uh, I want to move to medical insights now because that's probably something that you have no training in, and it's actually quite significant, and then move on to predictive prophecy. All right, so let's move on to... Uh, uh, medical Insights, you have that other article there, Scientific Foreknowledge and Medical Acumen of the Bible. So his points are absolutely fantastic. T take a look at this. In the middle paragraph there, talks about the first five books of the Old Testament are a product of Moses as a matter of historical record. The point he makes in the middle there is that Moses had been trained under the most advanced Egyptian educational system of his day. He leans on Stephen. Brother Stephen in Acts 7 said, all the wisdom of the Egyptians that Moses had been educated in. And that makes sense, right? I mean, if Moses really was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, of course he had an Egyptian education, which is fantastic for our point. Our point is that the books that Moses later wrote actually contain medical insights that there's no way he could have known, considering his own historical context being raised in the Egyptian context. All right, next page. It will cure you if it doesn't kill you first. Among the ancient documents that detail much of the Egyptian medicinal knowledge, the Ebers papyrus ranks as one of the foremost sources. This papyrus was discovered in 1872 by a German Egyptologist named George Ebers. It consists of a host of medical remedies purported to heal, enhance, and prevent Altogether, 811 prescriptions are set forth in the papyrus, and they take the form of salves, plasters, and poultices, snuffs, inhalations, and gargles, drafts, confections, and pills, fumigations, suppositories, and enemata. Among the hundreds of prescriptions, disgusting treatments that cause much more harm than good can be found. For instance, under a section titled, What to do to draw out splinters in the flesh, a remedy is prescribed consisting of worm blood, mole, and donkey dung. Doctors S.I. McMillan and David Stern note that dung is loaded with tetanus spores, and a simple splinter often resulted in a gruesome death from lockjaw. Remedies to help heal skin diseases included such prescriptions as a hog's tooth, 
cat's dung, dog's dung, berries of the zet plant, pound and apply as poultice. Various other ingredients for the plethora of remedies concocted included the dried excrement of a child, hog dung, and a farmer's urine. One recipe to prevent hair growth included lizard dung and the blood from a cow, donkey, pig, dog, and stag. While it must be noted that some of the Egyptian medicine actually did include prescriptions and remedies that could be helpful, the harmful remedies and ingredients cast a sickening shadow of untrustworthiness over the entire Egyptian endeavor as viewed by the modern reader. As medical doctor S.E. Messingill said, the early Egyptian physicians made considerable use of drugs. Their drugs were of the kind usually found in early civilizations, a few effective remedies lost in a mass of substances of purely superstitious origin. They used opium, squill, and other vegetable substances, but also excrement and urine. It is said that the urine of a faithful wife was with them effective in the treatment of sore eyes. That's right. That's right. You need a faithful wife. You get one of those cheating women, and that urine is not going to help your eyes. Why would you want to put bean in your eyes in the first place? That's just... I mean... the life force from a woman's urine. How do you know if they're pure? What if they're telling you that they haven't cheated on you? Well, that would be proof that they're not a faithful wife. <laughs> it's like, I'm serious. But what if you're faithful and it's still like it's going to burn no matter what? It's your eyes. Your eyes are sick. It's the healing of it. All right. Well, I think we all agree that this is pretty crazy. But here's the punchline. This Ebers papyrus that's giving us all this information about ancient Egyptian medical practice would have been the standard that Moses should have learned when he was in Egypt. If Moses was writing out of his own knowledge when he was generating the book of Leviticus in particular, which is the book that talks about what to do when somebody has a skin infection, what to do when, if somebody touches a dead body, and so on, we would find potions like what we see in the Ebers papyri. But instead, there's a shocking absence of any kind of harmful remedy. <laughs> it's kind of a contradiction. Keep going, Denise. I cut you off there. Sorry. I know you really want to get to the pus part. In addition, it seems that the Egyptians were among the first to present the idea of good and laudable pus. Mm. Due to the idea that infection was good and the pus that resulted from it was a welcome defect. Why are you judging their culture? Well-meaning doctors, I don't like the word pus. <laughs> Well-meaning well doctors killed millions by deliberately infecting their wounds. Needless to say, the modern-day reader would not want to be a patient in an Egyptian clinic. I think I heard a statistic one time where I think Egyptians, doctors go like 10 or 15 times more people than they actually hoped. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is uh, one more paragraph, Denise. Okay. The first five books of the Old Testament, admittedly, are not devoted entirely to the enumeration of medical prescriptions. They are not ancient medical textbooks. These books do, however, contain numerous regulations for sanitation, quarantine, and other medical procedures that were to govern the daily lives of the Israelite nation. Missing entirely from the pages of these writings are the harmful remedies and ingredients prescribed by other ancient civilizations. In fact, the Pentateuch exhibits an understanding of germs and disease that much modern medicine did not grasp for 3,500 years after the books were written. All right, so the, the big point about the Ebers papyrus, again, is that we don't see any sort of remedies like that in the Old Testament, which you would expect if somebody had been trained in Egypt prior to writing those books. Now, here's the next point. I've got four points here. Life is in the blood, 
cleansing after touching dead bodies, quarantine, and food laws. Okay? All of these things are completely obvious to you. Common sense. But they were not to ancient people. As we just read, they're fussing about farmer's urine and the urine of a faithful wife and trying to figure out if she's really faithful if it, the urine didn't actually fix your eyes instead of actually doing things that would work. So the, the point that he, he makes here and that many other people have made as well on uh, blood is that the Old Testament says a life is in the blood. Okay? And yet, up until at least the time of George Washington, bloodletting was fairly common. And that's where they would cut in a uh, blood vessel and let the bad blood out when you were sick. Now let me ask you a question. If you're sick, is it helpful or harmful to bleed a lot? All right. You and I know that. They didn't know that. Ancient Israelites never practiced that because the life is in the blood, so you're not going to bleed out your life. It doesn't make any sense. On the next page, you have germs, labor, fever, and biblical sanitation. This is all very good if you want to read it. I read it uh, again today. It's all about this Viennese doctor, Samuelis, who was running a clinic for women to go to to give birth, and the mortality rate was just phenomenal. It was 18% of the women who came to his clinic died, you know, gave birth, but then died themselves. And he couldn't figure it out. He's like, you know what it is? I think it's these monks reading, uh, ringing these bells nearby, and it's scaring the women, and it's, and it's killing the women. So he told the monks, you guys got to stop ringing those bells. Didn't work. Uh, they still kept dying. He's like, maybe the problem is that they're lying on their back. I'll have them lie on their side. He had all the women lie on their sides. They still died at just the same rate, you know, while they're giving birth and whatnot, you know? Now, this is the crazy thing. If you gave birth at home, which the rich women in their society would give birth at home, this is a couple hundred years ago, and the poor people would give birth in the hospital. Um, and so if you're a rich person, you give birth at home with a midwife, it's only 3% chance of dying. Right? But if you go into the hospitals, 18% is driving this guy nuts. He's like, why are, why are they all dying? And then uh, skip down to, uh, it's like three or four paragraphs down where it says, as he contemplated. You see where I'm at? It says, as he contemplated this dilemma, he watched young medical students perform their routine tasks. Each day, the students would perform autopsies on the dead mothers. Then they would rinse their hands in a bowl of bloody water, wipe them off on a common shared towel, and immediately begin internal examinations of the still living women. Hmm. That guarantees pretty much a transmission of whatever killed the last person to the living person, right? right? And that, this is in the 1800s, 1847. Right? This is not thousands of years ago. These people consider themselves modern. Right? And they had an incredible massive knowledge already. You know, I mean, in, even in our own time, 2015, the medical industry is really still in its infancy. It's my own personal opinion. But these people thought they were rather sophisticated, and yet they couldn't grasp the idea that if you can't see a contaminant on your hands, it, it, it could still be there. Right? Because you, you rubbed it off with a towel, right? You don't have to change your clothes or anything. You just you rub it off. There's nothing on my hands, right? They didn't understand germs yet. What he ended up doing is he innovated and had his doctors wash in chlorine. And it dropped from 18% to 1%. And nobody believed him. 
It took years and years and years for the rest of the society to pick it up because they thought he was just crazy. Anyhow, what we have in the scriptures is a commandment. Look on the next page over. The uh, second paragraph there said, Has Semmelweis made a groundbreaking discovery, or is it possible that he simply rediscovered what had been known in some circles for many years? Almost 3,300 years before Semmelweis lived, Moses had written, this is a direct quote from the Bible in uh, Leviticus, I believe, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Suddenly you're like, whoa, those weird laws in the Old Testament, maybe they actually really did something, right? The same page, the water of purification, he goes on to describe what that potion was, if for lack of a better word. Basically what it was, was ashes from a red heifer, cedar, scarlet dyed wool, and hyssop which just sounds like a bunch of random stuff that like a witch would put together and like, you know, but that's, it's a little more sophisticated than that. The way you make lye is you pass water through ashes, right? Hyssop contains an antiseptic. Cedar leaves and twigs are rich in vitamin C and they can have antiviral, anti-inflammatory and antibacterial properties. The wool fibers would make it basically into an ancient equivalent of lava soap. This sort of like, whatever you want to call it, concoction of purification that they use on the third and then the seventh day actually could have physically done something to cleanse them, right? What did they do? They touched a dead body. They're outside the camp. They're unclean for seven days. On the third day, they wash. On the seventh day, they wash. Now they come back in the camp. Why do you think there was such a great amount of time of three days in the seventh day? Do you think it's good? Probably, yeah. I mean, it doesn't take like three days for most things to really get to you. Yeah, yeah, probably. In ancient times, you know, they don't have the same kind of systems we have. So, like, you'd be walking along, you might see a dead body on the ground, right? And the ancient Jewish um, mindset was, we need to bury this person. We need to give this person an honorable burial. So they would dig a hole and they would bury the person, but then they would be unclean. So now they have to go outside for seven days, outside of their regular dwelling. Also, when they get home from battle, in battle, you don't shoot with guns, right? You've got swords, you've got spears, you've got knuckles, you know what I mean? And there's blood everywhere, right? And so you're going to go home and then spend time with your family right after that? What if that guy had the plague or some other sickness or smallpox or whatever? You know what I mean? Now, if you're outside the camp, you know, the whole thing has a, has a genius to it that doesn't make sense considering the time when it was written. You know, even if you assume liberal theories for authorship, it still doesn't make any sense. <laughs> as late as 1847, washing hands was ridiculed as actually doing anything, right? So, and then the next, uh, so that's cleansing. Quarantine, it, that's a lot to do with leprosy, skin infections, right? There's a lot in Leviticus about this, where they, the priest's job was to examine the skin, see how, how it was doing, quarantine it. Look at this one statement. This is Leviticus uh, 13.45. This is all in the article, which you can read at, at your leisure if you're so inclined. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. If you cover your upper lip, 
you're blocking germs, aren't you? <laughs> it's like, how would they know that, right? And why do you need all these signs and everything else? So everyone else knows this dude has a highly infectious skin disease that could kill you, right? And so it's just like one of these things that like people might make fun of. They'll be like, why is he covering his upper lip or his, actually I think in the Hebrew it says his mustache. Let's see how, yeah. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Like, why cover your mustache? Well, because you also have to cover your mouth if you cover your mustache. Go ahead and cover your mustache. Oh, there you go. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's quarantine. And then we get to the laws. We get to the food laws here. Okay, now the food laws are totally fascinating. They did all these tests. There's this guy. I don't remember his name, but he did all these tests with these seedlings where he tried to plant little seeds in meat juice from different animals to see which ones would seed well, you know, it would turn into a seedling well, and which ones it would, it would take a longer time compared to regular dirt. He found that all these animals that the Bible calls clean, like the ox, had a 91% growth rate, or sheep juices was 94%, a calf was 82%, a goat was 90%, a deer was 90%, but then he put it into the meat juice of a pig and it was 54%, or of uh, a rabbit, 49%, camel, 41%, horse, 39%. So why is it that the, and basically this is measuring toxic uh, levels, right? The toxins in these animals is higher than toxins in these other animals. I'm sure it has to do with just like how the animals are made. Uh, for example, with, um, with, with pigs, they're scavengers, right? So pigs just like basically eat anything, doesn't matter if it's alive or if it's dead, and those toxins get into the meat. And to this day, pigs are injected with nitrates, aren't they? Isn't that pork? That's, yeah. To prevent this trichinosis or something? Yeah. Yeah, trigonosis. So, so this is sort of like known in our modern times, you know, like we've developed strategies to fight against it. But in a pre-refrigeration world where food doesn't always get cooked all the way, it's just safer to say, hey, no pig. I'm not saying you can't eat bacon. But I, what I am saying is that <laughs> there might have been some significant, it's almost as if, I don't know, God gave them the laws. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> Am I being too radical for this, for this campus here? Fins and scales is the next section here. They talk about the blowfish and how it's 1,250 times more deadly than cyanide, the poison in a blowfish. A tiny amount of a blowfish poison can kill 30 adults. And so can an ancient Israelite eat blowfish? It needs to have fins and scales. Right? So they're automatically protected against that. They're automatically protected against shellfish, like oysters, that can contain this naturally occurring bacteria. And according to the FDA, 50% of people who are infected with this bacteria, sometimes found in oysters that are undercooked, die. So you don't want to eat undercooked oysters, right? Israelites didn't eat any oysters. Why? Because they don't have fins or scales. And that was one of the laws for clean and unclean. Then he goes on to talk about reptiles. Reptiles carry salmonella very easily. The CDC estimates over 70,000 cases of human salmonella infection each year related to handling reptiles and amphibians. That's from 2007. As high as 90% of reptiles are natural carriers of salmonella bacteria. Look at this. Now these are 
to you the unclean among the swarming things. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them, when they are dead, shall be unclean until the evening. Unclean people have to wash, right? And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water. It shall be unclean until the evening, and then it shall be clean. And it goes on to describe a little bit more, like if it hits a clay pot or something like that. Well, it turns out that uh, reptiles, that you know, for you to pick up the salmonella, it doesn't have to touch your hand. It could touch some, your, something else, and then you can eat that thing whatever it is. You know what I mean? So it doesn't necessarily have to be just eating the reptile. It could be touching something and then the reptile could touch it and then you could touch it after that. And that's what he talks about in here. And then the last category is bats. The Bible says don't eat bats. Bats have this incredibly high rate of rabies. So you just kind of look at these different things. Why in the world would it get so many things right if it's merely a human invention? Like how would they know all this? People don't know this in the ancient world, right? Yeah, you have a question? Okay. Question about the, um, Look, yeah, the CDC recommends that homes with children under five should not have reptiles as pets. Furthermore, they noted as high as 90% of reptiles are natural carriers of salmonella harboring strains specific to reptiles without any symptoms of disease in the reptile. While it is true that many pets can carry salmonella, the problem with reptiles, and apparently amphibians, is that they carry salmonella with such high frequency. It is prudent to assume that all reptiles and amphibians can be a potential source of salmonella. So they all aren't, but it's prudent to assume they are, and then what do you do? You wash your hands. It's not like it gets into your skin or something, it's just if you lick your hands after your, the frog peed on you, you might have a problem. There you have it. I'm not claiming any expertise here, I'm just reading what the CDC is saying and these other uh, sources are saying. Last one that I have forgotten to write down on our list was circumcision, all right? Circumcision, it turns out, you know, circumcision is surgery, right? And it turns out that in order to perform surgery, you need the blood to clot, right? And excessive bleeding is caused by a decreased level of prothrombin, which in turn is caused by insufficient levels of vitamin K, okay? So flip over to the page that says conclusion on it, and I'll read you right on the top there. That has to do with blood clotting, right? In chart form, Holt Pediatrics illustrates that the percent of available prothrombin in newborn dips from about 90% of normal on its day of birth to about 35% on its third day of life outside the womb. After the third day, the available prothrombin begins to climb. By the eighth day of the child's life, the available prothrombin level is approximately 110% of normal about 20% higher than it was on the first day and about 10% more than it will be during the child's life. Such data prove that the eighth day is the perfect day on which to perform a major surgery such as circumcision. That's insane, come on! Look at, that, look at that little quote there in the middle. Modern medical textbooks sometimes suggest that the Hebrews conducted careful observations of bleeding tendencies. Yet what is the evidence? 
Severe bleeding occurs at most only in one out of 200 babies. Determining the safest day for circumcision would have required careful experiments observing thousands of circumcisions. Could Abraham, a primitive desert-dwelling nomad, have done that? He's got one kid, right? At the time of the circumcision, it's just Ishmael, right? Like, he's going to circumcise his kid and, like, observe him, be like, well, actually, his, his kid was a few years older. But, like, the, the first baby was probably Isaac that he circumcised, you know? And he just got lucky, I guess, right? To pick the eighth day. And uh, so, I mean, it's just like, you see this wisdom, these, like, weird medical insights or scientific insights, and you're like, how in the world did they get there unless there is a God behind it? All right. So I'm already, I'm already way past my time, and we need to do predictive prophecy, all right? I'm just going to say two things about it. We've got Daniel 9, and we've got Tyre. Those are my two points. I'm going to say them right now. Daniel 9 makes the point that the Messiah will be cut off, and Tyre is in uh, Ezekiel prophecy that Tyre would be destroyed. Okay. I, I did want to make one other point about archaeology. Archaeology is not a hard science. You know what I'm saying? It's not like physics. It's not like chemistry. Archaeology is, you know, the actual digging of something. You know, that's obviously very, you know, developed at this point. But saying what it means, dating it, and all that kind of stuff, that is based on interpretation. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a soft science in the sense that they do change their interpretation of like when the Cyrus Cylinder you know, was originally written or something like that. But it's based on hard evidence. And I think it's important to keep that clear because a lot of times you'll, you'll come across an archaeological discovery and they'll be like, oh, this disproves this. And then 50 years later, they're like, actually, we, we, we found some more stuff and it was really this over here that disproved that instead. You know what I mean? Now, the actual ostraca or artifact or whatever they find is, is hard. That's hard evidence. The question is, how do you interpret that? How do you fit it into the timeline? So that's my point on archaeology being a soft science. We've got to talk about Tyre at least a little bit. The prophecy talks about how um, God is going to destroy this city and how he's going to specifically bring the Babylonians against it, and also many nations against it. What ends up happening here is... I have a question yeah. about... So what if... I mean, the latest documents we have are in 250 BC. Uh -huh, yeah. What is there any evidence of not being written after that point and looking back? Well, I think you're holding a standard that is not realistic. And, I, and I, I'm not trying to be insulting or anything, but with historical documents, there's always a huge gap, usually of thousands of years, between what they talk about and when the paper that we have today survives. You know what I mean? So it's not standard procedure to expect the document that we have in the museum today to be within the lifetime or within a range of what it records because of the nature of paper and other things they wrote on. The exceptions are what I just showed you, are those archaeological finds. But from those exceptions, we can correlate written histories. So you have textual histories, then you have archaeological finds, physical remains, uh, actual physical remains of cities as well. 
And so the historian is working these things all together to develop a massive chronology of whatever society we're talking about. So I think it's more of just like a methodological, it, it's certainly possible that somebody could have written Ezekiel in the year 300 BC and made it all up. You know, it's certainly possible, but, you, but then that level of skepticism would exclude any other historic, you ba we basically have to say we don't know anything that happened before the printing press. It's just too hyper-skeptical to uh, use as a methodology. Although I, I definitely see your point. All right, so look at the bottom there where it says, therefore. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Attire, and will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place up for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. All right, what does the prophecy say is going to come to Tyre, coming against Tyre? Who is going to come? Many nations. Many nations, right? Here's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar did come against Tyre. All right, so what we, what we have here is the old city of Tyre, which is on the mainland, and then you also have an island off the mainland. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and he attacks Tyre, the, the regular city on the mainland, and he's able to fight against it for a long time. I think it lasts for like 13 years, really long time. And he ends up going away basically empty-handed because although he defeats the city, the people escape to the island. And they're just like, nah, 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 on the island. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have a navy. He doesn't have a way to deal with the problem. So he eventually just destroys the city on the land. So anyhow, fast forward in time a couple hundred years. Alexander the Great is now attacking Tyre. And in his conquest to attack Tyre, the people decide they're going to defy Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is like the kind of guy that, that doesn't take no for an answer. Let's put it that way. And so all the people leave the mainland and they go to the island and they're just like, nah, 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 right? Because Alexander the Great didn't have much of a navy either. And so Alexander the Great ordered his men, thousands and thousands and thousands of men, to take all of the stones from the old city of Tyre and throw them into the ocean and build a bridge and then he marched his soldiers across the bridge and killed the people on the island. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> right? And so the old city literally got scraped like a rock and it's a place for spreading out nests. So I, I, know, I just love that story and it's a good example of predictive prophecy. So I wanted to make sure I had a chance to share it with you. There's obviously a lot more details and there are skeptics that want to come back and say, oh, well, what about this? And this article here is the comeback to what the skeptics are saying. So it gives you a very thorough presentation on the whole Tyre subject. But just one thing to keep in mind, when Ezekiel's saying this, Tyre's like New York City, it's like Hong Kong. You don't say New York, Manhattan is gonna get scraped bare of any structures. Like nobody says that, but that's what Ezekiel said and then it's what actually happened. What are the chances of that? If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, 
as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.